Now there's a stat floating around um, that if something good happens to you, you're likely to tell three people that good news. However, you're more likely to tell 10 people if something bad happens. We're more likely to tell people bad news than we're likely to tell them good news. I don't know why that is, but that's just what the researchers have discovered. But, so when researchers um, were questioning Christians, just taking a poll and wanting to know why it was that Christians are a bit shy when it comes to telling their friends and family, the people that they love in their lives about the good news of Jesus, the reply was that these Christians were concerned that when they shared the good news of Jesus, that it would come across as bad news to the people that they loved. Does that resonate with you? I see a few nods. I think a lot of us have felt that way. How many of us have sat with that yucky pit in our stomach knowing that we have friends and family that are still living under the judgment of God. And for us, the message of the Bible feels like really bad news for them. You know that feeling? Maybe this is you. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you can relate to a comic that I came across online recently. So in the comic, the character is a mouse, but really, he's every person. And the mouse says, as a kid, I was told about God and how much he loved me and how he'd send me to hell forever if I made the wrong choices. For years, my life felt like a trap door that could open at any moment into eternal suffering. The older I got, the weirder I think it is to tell a kid something like that. Maybe this is you. Maybe you're the mouse. Maybe you have had that niggling feeling that maybe the message of the God of the Bible is not good news for you or anyone that you know. Or maybe the people who told the mouse about God didn't tell him the whole story. Maybe, we'll see like with Jonah today, they only told one part of the story and left out the good part. So let's turn to Jonah chapter 3. Keep that open today. And see what Jonah's bad news was that ultimately turned out to be God's good news for Nineveh and everyone in it. Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. 
And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So after all this dramatic nonsense of ignoring God's commands and, and doing the complete opposite of what God asked him to do, Jonah finally rocks up in Nineveh and he walks into the middle of the city and he says five words. Well, in your English translations, it's eight, but he basically delivers a five-word sermon. The bad news is that their city is going to be overturned. He says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Full stop. Makes for a great, great tweet. <laughs> and as a result, this tweet went viral. This message, this five-word sermon spreads throughout the entire city. But there's no, who is this message from? What did they do wrong? Why is this happening? In fact, it might seem that Jonah is still a wee bit wrinkled about what God is actually asking him to do, and he's doing the bare minimum of speaking to the Ninevites with the message of God. What's going to happen? City's going to be overthrown. When? 40 days. That's it. That's all they know. And the message goes viral. The God of Israel is bringing judgment. In their worldview, if, they don't do it so much these days, but you probably know enough of, of recent history to know that it used to be a thing where people would walk around holding signs saying, the end is near, right? Yet, how many people actually paid attention to any of those people, right? This is essentially what Jonah's doing. <laughs> He's walking around with a placard on there, five words only, the end is near, 40 more days, Nineveh's going to be overthrown, that's it. Today, most people would just ignore him, but not in Nineveh. And it's not because there was necessarily something special about Jonah, a lot of it had to do with this fits within their worldview. According to their worldview, there are multiple gods working in the universe. And at any given time, 
you might upset one of these gods. You might know why, you might not know why. In fact, there might not even be a reason why, but all of a sudden, this god is pissy with you and is going to destroy you and your family and your community. That's part of their worldview. So when this new guy rocks up and says that 40 more days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown, and he's representing this god that they don't really know, they take it seriously. And they believe God. But Jonah's message offers no hope. It's all bad news for them. Somehow they've upset Jonah's God. They are doomed. And Jonah is no different from, you know, those Westboro Baptist folks who they rock up to funerals or events holding these heinous signs and screaming in people's faces that they're going to hell? No hope. But Jonah's message, five words, God's judgment on Nineveh has gone viral and the city is turned upside down. They believe God. It's not just a mental ascent like, oh yeah, I think that's true, get on with your day. They believe that he will do what he says he will do, and the city as a result is unrecognizable to any visitor after this viral sermon. They stop eating and drinking, from the greatest to the least, even the animals. They wear sackcloth, and the ruler steps off of his throne, takes off his royal robes, sits in the dust, and makes this proclamation that the people are to call out to God, believe God, and to stop violence and stop their evil ways. And maybe, maybe there's a chance that God won't put the judgment on them. Nineveh is a culture that is marked by creating its own right and wrong, good and evil. A violent city that has embraced the ethic of might makes right. As long as we're more powerful, stronger, more violent than the other guys, that makes us right. A ruler who does not deserve God's compassion or mercy. Think of Nazi Germany. What if this type of turnaround happens and Hitler repented of his relentless systems of oppression and death and made a decree that the entire population of Germany would be humbled and turn themselves around beginning with himself, his government, his military, in the hope that God would turn away from his righteous anger and forgive them. How does that sit with you? God forgiving Hitler and Nazis. There might be a little niggling feeling 
And I think this is what was happening in Jonah as well. Does Hitler deserve the off chance that God would not judge him and have compassion on him? That God would show him mercy and forgiveness? Surely it is right and just for evil people and systems and institutions and governments to be held accountable, condemned, and judged. Bad news. You deserve judgment, Nineveh, and you're going to get what you deserve. And yet, verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Here we learn something of God's character that is thoroughly good news. When a person living a life of self-gratification and self-destruction in opposition to God and his ways, when a person is harming and sabotaging themselves, others, their relationships, their workplaces, their institutions, their cultures, their governments, deciding for themselves what is right and good and wrong and not good, and conveniently denying any wrongdoing when it serves their interests and yet holding others to a higher standard than they hold themselves, when a person believes God and stops, and turns around toward God in repentance and faith, meaning that, they're gen that they genuinely believe God and who he says he is and what he promises that he will do it, their lives are overturned and they are unrecognizable. When they believe God, and repent, he always forgives. It is his very nature to be compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and faithful. But how could a compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and loving God judge others? Love is not the antithesis of judgment. It is not unloving for God to hold someone accountable to the harm they do to themselves and others and their society. For a policeman to walk by as someone is physically assaulting another person, to walk by and keep walking, thinking to themselves, it would be unloving for me to stop that right now and to arrest them so that they could be rightly judged and held accountable for their actions right now. The opposite of, of judgment is not love. What we have there in that situation is that the policeman is not loving. The policeman is apathetic. Apathy. Apathy is wicked and evil in this situation. 
apathy is not compassionate to those who have been harmed by our words or actions or sinful motivations. Apathy is not gracious to allow people to keep destroying themselves and others and opposing God's good plan for humans to thrive in relationship with him and each other and their world. Apathy is not slow to anger. It's nothing. It's emotionless. Sin and oppression to God's good ways should make God angry. And yet, he doesn't zap us with lightning. He gives us so many chances to believe him, repent, turn to him. He's always forgiving, always faithful, and true to his character. From the greatest to the least, the people of Nineveh, including their ruler, are spared. The ruler who committed a hundred times the atrocities, making decisions to go to war, ruin countless numbers of innocent people's lives, to the humble blacksmith apprentice in Nineveh, who may not have sat on a throne or committed gross atrocities, but sure enough in his heart, he had decided for himself what was good and what was not good, and had burned relationship bridges and hurt others when it served his good. God saw that they believed him, humbled themselves, repented, and he relented and did not destroy them. Now, this is only part of the story. We know <laughs> that... Um, Nineveh did not stay repentant. This feeling of relief from having escaped God's judgment is so temporary. We know for a fact that this repentance didn't last. Within a few generations, Assyria became the most violent, the most feared world empire that the world had ever seen. And they eventually... Um, attacked Israel, took over the region, scattered the people of Israel, and enslaved them. Now, hundreds of years later, another king comes on the scene. A king who also steps down from his throne. A king who also removes his glorious royal robes, humbles himself, and lives among his people, giving them a declaration as well. Believe and repent is his message. God sent his own son, Jesus of Nazareth, God become man, his own messenger to his own people, living a humble life, teaching the other side of the coin to judgment. The good news, which is not just no judgment, it's not even 
just forgiveness. It's so much more. So what is the good news? Some say that it's that Jesus saves you from judgment and hell when you die, and you go to heaven. And some prayed a prayer and said sorry that they had sinned. They mentally agree with this truth about God, but their lives aren't remarkably altered in any way. Their belief bore no fruit of repentance, turning away from sin and towards God. Jesus says in Mark 1, verse 15, he says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What is the good news? That I don't go to hell when I die? Or that, phew, I escaped judgment. Woohoo! Yeah, that's pretty great, and it's true. But that's not so great when my mom and dad don't believe and they go to hell. Turn to John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, um, I believe it's at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is at the end of his mission that God has sent him in the world to do, to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God, believe and repent. And he says this to his father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The good news is that Jesus has made it possible to know God, to participate in the kingdom of God, to have eternal life. Not just after we die, although that is good, but right now. All made possible because of Jesus, who humbled himself, took on himself all that we should have been held accountable for, suffering death, and in his resurrection, conquering the power of sin over us, so that we should no longer be enslaved to sinful desires, thoughts, or actions, harming ourselves or others or our society, and most importantly, to be in a good relationship with God rather than deciding right and wrong for ourselves when it suits our interests. The good news is that we can believe God, repent, and live in the kingdom of God way of living now. Live out eternal life now. 
live in Christ now, fruit of the Spirit living now, love God, one another, our neighbors, just as God intended it now. This is the good news that the angels proclaimed the night that Jesus was born. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. This is actually good news. Not that you escaped judgment, although it is that, but that you can leave behind a life of sinful destruction and have eternal life, a kingdom of God life, a life that is made possible because of Christ. Now, as you read through the Bible, as you read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and all his teachings and all of the New Testament, especially the last one, the book of Revelation, this is all describing eternal life now and how Jesus' followers in the early church were figuring out how to live eternal life now in their context. Eternal life is not just something that you get to enjoy when you die. That's okay news. It's kind of great. But the really good news that brings people joy is that Christ has made this available to us now. Now, so often when we talk about the good news, we quote John 3.16, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. Now, in our 21st century Western um, ways of thinking, we think of the word perish as in, oh, that's when your heart stops and your brain stops functioning. That's when you die. And we think of eternal life, everlasting life of, oh, so after you perish, then you kind of live forever in the presence of God, whatever that looks like. And that's kind of just what you do. La-di-da. It doesn't sound like good news, does it? For a first century Jewish person hearing the teaching of Jesus, for a first century Gentile, doesn't mean the same thing as it means to you and me. For them, they had a phrase, they had two phrases for ways of living. One phrase was a kind of earthly living, where your priorities were, um, would you have food to eat that day? Would you have clothes to wear? Would you have a roof over your head? This was an earthly type of living, you know, meeting my immediate needs right now. And if you have this type of earthly living where my immediate needs need to be met, well, the way that you live, you might lie, cheat, or steal to make sure you had those things in your life. But then there was another way of living. A rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? Jews were not thinking about this life that happens after death. This wasn't the question he was asking. What can I do ultimately that after I die that I can escape the judgment of God? What, they, what he was asking was, how can I grasp at a way of living 
so that it's not these temporal things that I'm obsessing over, but that it's more the things of God, the things that are of higher priority. How can I obtain that way of living? And do you remember what Jesus replied to him? Who remembers? Go and sell all that you have. And how did he take that? Not very well. <laughs> no, not ready to do that yet, Jesus. Um, yeah, not very well. Um, so turn to John chapter 3. And let's look at it through the lens of what a first century Jewish person reading that passage would, how they would receive it. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. For God so loved the world, he so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. This isn't referring to when your heart stops and your brain stops functioning. This perishing is a process. It's a way of living that leads to destruction and death. Whoever believes in him shall not continue living in a way that leads to destruction and death, but have eternal life. What does this mean? To participate in the life of God in the age to come. That's how in the age to come is how this is often translated. When is the age to come? Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom of God during his mission here on earth. The kingdom of God was made possible for you and I to participate in at the point of his death and his resurrection. The kingdom of God, eternal life, is available for us to participate in now. That's good news. That is good news. I urge you to look at the rest of that section of John chapter 3 in your own time because it's quite revealing. If we think of eternal life in, in this sense, the rest of John chapter 3 really comes to life. Believe and repent because the good news is so much better than it was for Nineveh. Escape God's judgment for a period of time then kind of get on with your, the rest of your life and go back to being evil overlords. It's so much better news than to anyone who just wants to escape eternal punishment after they die. Like the father of the prodigal son, when we believe and repent, and we turn toward God, Jesus, God in Jesus doesn't only forgive us, although that's pretty great, but when we repent and believe, we are so lavishly loved and included in his family and his kingdom now, today. 
a pastor in the U.S. recently summed up eternal life in this way. And what he's doing is essentially just summarizing the whole New Testament. What is eternal life? Eternal life is empowered by grace, not disempowered by shame. It's a life not driven by condemnation and guilt. It's a life where forgiveness and mercy flow freely from God to us and therefore can be freely given to others. It's a life that seeks to support all that is good, true, and beautiful. It's a life of integrity that seeks to do what is right and just. It is a life not motivated by fear or worry. It's a life that reflects the belief that God is good, regardless of our current circumstances. It's a life not characterized by explosions of anger and deep-seated rage. It's a life of overwhelming joy and peace, even when things seem out of control. It's a life where all of our deepest longings and desires our thirsts, our hunger, are satisfied in God. It's a life of being secure in who God is and who he made us to be. It's a life marked by love. And I might add to his list that it is a life lived in community with other people who have been saved and rescued from a life of destruction leading to death, enjoying it together, loving each other, encouraging each other, and letting that spill out and being sent out to invite others to join in the kingdom of God and eternal life living. Believe and repent. We are citizens of heaven now while living on earth. Looking forward to the resurrection, that day when the city of God will come down and we will dwell with God and rule with him and it will all be as it should be. Until then, we participate in eternal life now. Looking forward to the day when it will all be perfected. There'll be no more destruction and no more death. It's okay news to want to avoid judgment now and after you die. But that's not the full story. The mouse in the cartoon needed to hear the full story. He needed someone to tell him that not only does God love him, but that he is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, faithful to his promises to always forgive. And he wants to welcome us into his kingdom, making it possible for us to live eternal life now, loving others now, seeking the good of this world now, knowing God and being known by him now not living in fear of God's judgment because Jesus has already taken that away and we are free to live eternal 
lives now free from bondage to sin. That is good news. And I hope you feel compelled to pray for and share this news with at least three people this year, if not more. It is good news. Pray with me. Dear loving God, thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ to rescue those who are lost, those who do great evil in the world and knowingly and actively oppose you to those who unknowingly are lost and just determining for themselves what is right and good, but moving further and further away from you. Thank you for sending Jesus to rescue people like us who are lost and turning us toward you that we may believe and repent and enjoy your kingdom of God living now, eternal life now. Please compel us to share that good news with people in our lives so that they too may believe and repent and know the good news of knowing you and being known by you and living an eternal life now and in the age to come. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs>